So this week, we're in Acts 26, and we're getting to this part where Paul gets to give us this, um, he gets to give us this, this testimony, this presentation of, of what Christ has done in his life and the gospel. And as we said, God has created this opportunity for Paul to do it before the most powerful, influential people of his time in that area. And so the king looks at Paul and he says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I pushed them often in all the synagogues, punished them often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temples and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he, will, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. You know, we 
probably don't have all that Paul said, but we've got a lot, and, and we certainly have enough. But to kind of set the scene again from last week, the way Luke describes this in the first, in chapter 25, he describes this scene as, you know, you have the king and Bernice coming in, and he says, with great pomp. And you have all of these others who are assembled there, who are very, you know, powerful, influential people. And Paul is barely mentioned. He's barely mentioned. He's just kind of, kind of thrown in in the middle of it. Paul was brought in. The spotlight is on, on the world and on the powerful people in the world. We know that they're there for different reasons. You know, part of the reason I think like, that Festus is there is because Festus is genuinely perplexed. He doesn't know what to do. Paul has appealed to the emperor, but Festus doesn't have any charges that he can legitimately bring against Paul that Paul could then go appeal. Agrippa is there because I think this is an opportunity for Agrippa to kind of, to, you know, to, to kind of get the, the new governor kind of in his debt. But it's also an opportunity before all the powerful people to show how wise he is. And then you have all the other people, all the powerful people there for different reasons, largely just because it's an event. The governor's there. The king is there. Bernice is there. It's there to be, to be seen. You have all these reasons. And in the middle of this, Paul shares the gospel. And he does it in a very Eastern way. He doesn't do it the way we would do it. Part of it is because Paul doesn't, you know, he can't go to the Roman road because he hasn't written it yet. Um, but he, 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 he doesn't present the propositions the way we would, ex we would write, we would present the gospel. He does it in a very Eastern way, and it's a way that I keep reminding us of this because it's so hard for us. Our brains do not work this way. But he teaches them the principles of the gospel by sharing the story. And in this case, it's his story. It's what really happened to him. And he gives us up front what he sees as the issue. If you look in verse 6, it says, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. My hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Part of what Paul is doing, he's not simply sharing what God has done. He's not simply sharing what has happened in his life. He's actually presenting, he's presenting to all of these, these powerful, influential people, he's presenting to them these two ways two really important ways of interpreting the hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. He's gone to great lengths to, to tell us that he's a Pharisee. He doesn't say, I was a Pharisee, I am a Pharisee. He was trained as a Pharisee. 
And the Pharisees and even the Sadducees would agree, this is what God's Word says. God's Word says there's a promise that's being made. There's a promise of this restoration that that God is bringing. But there are two very distinct ways of interpreting this. And Paul is going to present both ways. One way is the one that everybody was kind of on board with at this point. The one that they saw the most among especially the Jewish, the Jewish people. It was this nationalistic interpretation. This nationalistic interpretation that, that, that this was to, to restore the nation of Israel as a political entity. Yes, there was the religious side of it. And the Jewish people, though, had kind of taken sides on this. And we see this represented by the major parties. You have, you know, you have the Pharisees who are saying, yes, God wants to restore his people. He wants to restore his nation, Israel. And then you have the Sadducees who are like, yes, that's what it means, but we don't want this. They're actually rejecting the promise. They're rejecting the hope. They want to just kind of keep it how things are. Again, as we've talked about before, because the Sadducees were doing quite well. They were powerful. They were wealthy. Why should they want to change? Who do they care who's in charge as long as they're powerful and wealthy? The people largely were on the side of this Pharisees, pro-national interpretation of this promise. And of course, if you're Festus, and you're the military tribunes there, the Roman you know, uh, army officials, then you know what that means. If you're going to interpret this in this nationalistic way, it means that eventually there's going to be war. The Jews are going to go to war against the Romans. And in fact, in a Roman's mind, it couldn't be really considered war. It's like when I was growing up in Hawaii, we used to say like in in college football, our biggest rival was BYU. You know, we always used to say that. We had never beaten BYU ever in football, ever. And if you ask BYU people, is Hawaii your biggest rival? They're like, what? Why? They're like a mosquito. Who has a rivalry with a mosquito? That's kind of how the, the, the Jewish people had been to the Romans. They kept having these insurrections, these rebellions that were put out. Felix, had, the previous governor, had done this. He had just been wiping these out. Unfortunately, he wasn't very good at stopping them. He wasn't very good at kind of changing the, the, you know, the dynamic so that they stopped popping up. But nevertheless, they would put them down, put them down, and it's because of this interpretation of this promise, this hope in this promise that God would restore his people. He would restore the throne of David. He would restore the nation of Israel. It meant the Romans would be overthrown. Paul's bringing the second interpretation. The second interpretation, which takes into 
into, into view a bigger, a bigger chunk of, of what we find in, in the Old Testament. That this wasn't about the restoration of the nation of Israel. This was about the universal kingdom of God. That what this Messiah would come and do, this Messiah would come from Israel, but what this Messiah would do is he would establish God's kingdom among all the people. What does that look like? That's what Paul's going to unpack for them. So you have to understand, Paul's telling this story and he's starting with this hope because he knows that is the big issue in the culture of that time, in that region. In that region, what the governor's biggest headache was, was dealing with these, these rebellious, radical um, you know, you know, Jewish nationalists and always trying to figure out how to, how to, to, to like, get rid of them. And, and you know, we know, we've, we've, we saw in, earlier in Acts, the, the Jewish leadership had spies among the Romans and the Romans had spies among the Jewish people. It's not a happy, healthy relationship here when you have spies. What Paul's about to show when he tells this story, he's, he's about to tell them, look, I started out a Pharisee, and I started out with that same nationalistic viewpoint, and this is where it led me. Then Jesus, then Jesus did something to me. I understood, and this is who I am now. In a sense, if 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 Paul's not going to convince those there, if he's not going to share the gospel in such a way that they respond and they want to become believers, if he's not going to do that, he's at least going to pose this question, who would you rather have? Would you rather have these nationalists who are constantly threatening you or people like me and the other followers of the way? who are in fact, in many ways, model Roman citizens. He's going to show he's, he's lived both, but ultimately he wants to, he wants to share with them the, the hope that comes through Jesus Christ, and that it's not just the hope for the nation of Israel, it's the hope for the whole world. And what we're going to find we're going to find in the next couple of weeks, what we're going to find is that when this is clearly articulated, that many people in that situation, and I would argue that many people in our world today, when they have the hope of Christ clearly articulated to them, they cannot or they will not see it. They cannot see it. It just doesn't compute. I was talking with a friend once, and, and, and you know, they, were, they were talking about, you know, how do we solve the problems in our culture today? And you know, I, I shared with them about you know, the hope that Christ brings, and, and the person just couldn't see it. The person was like, that'll never work. That'll never work. It'll never work 
that, that people can be transformed by the Holy Spirit in such a way that they will, they will unite, they will love, they will work together, they will stop dividing over the things that don't matter. It'll never work. She couldn't see it. And, and I, I get it. She couldn't see it because she's never experienced the transformed life. She hasn't spent enough time around Christians, and maybe this is some of you who were just total jerks and punks and selfish and, you know, stubborn and greedy and angry all the time, and then Christ comes in, and then all of a sudden, you're a different person. They haven't seen the transformation. The person who just lived for themselves and was all about their pride and their stuff and their family and, and everything was about them, and then all of a sudden, they, 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 they can't help but love everyone. Couldn't see it. But there's other people who will not see it. They could see it. In fact, there's a level where they actually understand it. But they don't want to see it. And it's because as they get closer and closer to understanding the hope that Jesus Christ brings, they understand two things. One, the problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. What needs to change is not the world. What needs to change is each one of us. We are the problem. And the second thing, and you got to give credit to the Sadducees for at least being honest, when people understand the hope that Jesus Christ brings, what they understand is the system has to change. The system changes. The values change. How we relate to one another changes. And people don't want that. They can't accept that. I'm going to tell you, you hear people talking about this in non-Christian settings. It's more and more talked about where people go like, you know, we just got to change things. We got to make radical changes, radical changes. I'm going to tell you, they're not making radical changes. They're just changing the names. They're just changing the names and repeating the sins. They're not making changes. They're just replacing one powerful people with another powerful people. That's all they're doing. Because there's no life change. It's not that there's a lot of really better, good, awesome, pure and holy people out there. We just need to make sure they get in charge. No. You might think like, you know, I know some good people. Do you know good people who have absolute power? What would you do if you had the power to change everything? If you were like me and you were honest, you know what you would do? You would hide under your desk crying. Because you would start to understand I have this awesome responsibility and I do not have the ability to do it. The system has to change. The Sadducees understood that. They're like, we don't want Jesus. We don't want 
you know, Barabbas, we don't want any of these supposed saviors because they're going to change the system. We're doing quite well. Leave us alone. And there are people like that. And so in verses 9 through 11, Paul testifies to his nationalist view. Look at how he talks about himself. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He, he, he says, I did it in Jerusalem. You know, it's in my neighborhood. But he says, I not only locked up people when there was a vote or whether there was any decision whether they should be executed, I was all for it. And then it says, I punished them in the synagogues, and you see this little phrase, I tried to make them blaspheme. He's, he's admitting, I tortured people. This is Paul. I tortured these people to make them blaspheme, to make them deny Jesus. What's he describing? He's describing that you know, this is what people in power do when someone is threatening them. He's violent. He's hateful. He's angry. And the worst part of it all is he feels justified because he thinks he's doing what is right. Let me just tell you this. It's kind of an aside here. I don't care how pretty you make your sin. I don't care how righteous you describe your sin. I don't care how reasonable you make your sin. It is still sin. You can dress it up however you want. You can justify it as much as you want. But if you hate, it is sin. But I hate for the right reasons. You still hate. It is sin sin. In fact, I will go as far as this to say, if we really want to understand the higher ethic of Christianity, it's like this. Anything you do less than love is sin. And I don't care how you justify it. What is Paul doing I'm not sure all of this is in Paul's mind as he's speaking, but I know from reading Paul's other letters that he understands this. What's, what's happened is God had given this plan, this plan for salvation for the world. He'd given it to his people, his chosen people. But unfortunately, the powerful people among those people, they'd compromised the plan. They'd compromised the plan so much, so much, that even though it's clearly stated in God's Word, it's right there in, in, in the first five books of the Old Testament. It's right there when, it, it, with, right in the verses where, where it, it talks, it, that became like the Jewish confession of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. In all of that, they were constantly reminded 
what Jesus reminds them of when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else is founded on love, period. But that had been compromised. And instead of love, it had become about power. Verses 12 through 18, Paul shares his encounter with Jesus, the risen Lord. There's so much here that I don't really have time to unpack. And as John and I do every week, we give you advertisement. You want to unpack it more? Come on Wednesdays. You want to unpack it more? You know, set up a time. We'd love to sit down and talk with you and, and, and answer your questions or hear some of your thoughts. But what we see here is we, we see in verse 14 that out of this light that is brighter than the midday sun, out of this light, he hears the voice, and the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's very clear this is Jesus, the risen Lord, speaking to Paul. Why are you persecuting me? And then he says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads were like things that sometimes they were attached to the animals and sometimes they were just a stick, but they kind of kept like an oxen if it's pulling a plow or a wagon, you know, going in the right direction. And it had become a proverb um, among the Gentiles among the Greeks and the Romans, and it meant that to kick against the goads meant that you knew what God or the gods wanted, but you were trying to change your own fate. It's interesting that Jesus says to, to Paul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What this, to me, reveals, what, G, what Paul is sharing with the people there is that Paul is saying, I, I knew the truth before the light. I knew when I looked at those Christians and I really studied the Hebrew Scriptures, I knew they were living out what my faith was better than I was. I knew it. And I knew it was from God. But that just drove me to deeper hatred. More anger. More resentment. He knew. He knew that even though he was an expert at keeping the law, he was an expert at explaining the law, that he had lost, as Jesus said, that fundamental basis for all the law. Love your God with all you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. He knew it. But then, he's like, it's like in an instant, and it's almost like Paul doesn't even know how to explain what happened to him. But in verse 15, you get, I think, Paul's confession of faith, which actually comes in the form of a question where he says, who are you, Lord? 
Who are you, Lord? He realizes that, that all of his attempts to be righteous, all of his attempts, attempts to do his right, was leading him to, to anger, to bitterness, to emptiness. And he realized that Jesus, this voice confronting him in this light, was the hope that if he was ever going to escape this, it was going to be by calling Jesus Lord. Who are you, Lord? And it says, the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I want you to think like what's going on in the minds of the audience who's listening. Remember, a lot of them are not Jewish. Most of them, in fact, are Gentiles or Romans. They're pretty powerful people. They've lived in the area, so they have some knowledge. But what are they thinking well, you would be amazed that some of them are not thinking like Paul's just totally out of it, like, oh, as soon as he starts talking about bright lights and voices. No, they, they, they had heard this before. You know, they, they, in their own culture, had stories like this. That wasn't really the surprising part. The surprising part is when Jesus gives Paul the new direction in his life. Paul says, I did it. What they know is they know that that instantaneous conversion is not normal. He went from angry, belligerent, hateful, you know, want to wipe out everybody who disagrees with me, to what we might call like a pacifist, but a very active pacifist. One who now, they, they know the stories. What's happened to this guy? He's been falsely imprisoned. He's been falsely accused. He's been beaten. There's been times when he's been like stoned to death and left for dead. And that's not talking about all the things that don't come up you know, other kinds of social persecution that he might have faced. And in all of that, we never have Paul, we never have Paul organizing a strike. We don't have Paul getting together militant Christians to go attack. We don't get any of that from Paul. And believe me, Paul could have raised an army. There were that many people who believed and they supported him. He could have, but he doesn't. How do you go from someone like how Paul was, and he's like, everybody knows it. I have a sense that when Paul describes what's going on, he's talking about things, and he says everybody knew that, that everybody did know that Paul was that rising star among the Jewish leaders. He was, he was so passionate, he was even rejecting the teachings of his own teacher. His teacher was Gamaliel, who was much more moderate in his approach. And he's like, just let the Christians be. 
Because, you know, if the Christians really are following the Messiah, that would be bad to be opposing them. But second of all, if they're not, you know what's going to happen? The same thing that happened to the last 27 people that claimed to be the Messiah and had followers. They're going to disappear. They'll be gone. When Gamaliel was saying this, Paul was probably like, no way, cannot be. Let's go take care of them now. Gamaliel, he's just that old man. He's lost his zeal. That guy becomes this guy who's standing before all of these people. And there's a boldness there. There's a courage there. But I believe that they know the witness of his life to know this is no longer a hateful, violent person. He's been transformed. And he shares that transformation. In verses 19 through 23, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And he says, I, I went. And, and, and again, what Paul's saying is very radical for just the common person to do, just the travel in and of itself. But he says, I've been going, and I'm going to tell you, I went to the Jewish people and I went to the Gentiles. And all, what I'm doing is I'm telling them what God says, and I'm telling them they should repent. We're not forcing them to repent. We're not coercing them to repent. We're not doing anything like that. We're simply presenting the message. And he says, because of this, I was seized. Because of this, people have tried to kill me. And in some ways, he's, he's, he's helping them understand. He's saying, look, I not only preached repentance, I've experienced repentance. I'm no longer going in that path I was going. That very well would have led to probably me eventually raising up, you know, a, a, a militant group of Jews to attack Rome. No, not going there. I experienced repentance. I turned to becoming someone who spread the message of God that through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be transformed in such a way that we can experience God's kingdom uniting us all as we experience his love. If you back up to verse 18, I think what Paul says about that, that Paul says that Jesus told him that he's to go do, it's because he has experienced it. And look at how it's described there. To open their eyes, first thing, open their eyes. Second thing, they may turn from darkness to light. Third thing, turn from the power of Satan to God. And then he says... Why? So that they might receive forgiveness of sins and they might have a place among those who are sanctified. That's it. Paul says, this is what I was told to do. I was told to go preach. And this is what I've experienced. 
In verse 22, he, he says, where he's talking about, to this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great. I think this is Paul's evidence. He goes, despite the efforts of my enemies, despite the people who want to kill me, I am fulfilling my mission even now by witnessing to you. Verses 22 and 23, Paul also ties everything to Scripture and everything to the resurrection of Christ. I'm not going to, you know, re, you know, reemphasize a point that I made several weeks ago about the importance of the resurrection. I do encourage you to go and read more about what Paul teaches on this in 1 Corinthians 15. But here he's saying, the suffering of Christ was prophesied. The resurrection of Christ was prophesied. That Christ would be, the, would be proclaimed light to our people and to the Gentiles was prophesied. All that's prophesied. He's helping them understand that resurrection is, is, is not like a nice additional belief. Some of the Jewish people, the Pharisees in particular, they could accept resurrection. But they couldn't accept resurrection of Jesus Christ because they knew if they accepted resurrection of Jesus Christ, they also had to accept the lordship of Jesus Christ. They weren't going to do that. And so he ties everything back to the Scriptures, and he ties everything to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hope that we have in Christ is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me give you three quick points here. The first one is, how does this apply to us? This is, this is what the text is communicating. You know, how does this apply to us? What does this mean to us? Well, first of all, as I said before, the world cannot accept the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They have a hard time accepting it, and for different reasons. And not surprisingly, for the same reasons, people standing there listening to Paul would have rejected it. Because even in Paul's day, there were atheists. And the atheists would say, yeah, resurrection, Jesus Christ, God, none of that's true. Nice beliefs. They're going to just dismiss it out of hand. But then there's various versions of theists, people who believe in, in a God or some sort of God or multiple gods. And for those who were there in that time and even for people in our time, the, the the confrontation there would be like, what kind of God do you have that doesn't have power over death? When Paul was raising that question, that's what would have been in their minds. Wait a minute. Yeah, I guess I shouldn't just dismiss the resurrection out of hand. To people like the Sadducees who had this more deistic view of God that there is a God in some sense, but he's not concerned with the day-to-day. -day. Kind of the question is, what use is that kind of God? And look at where it leads. It leads to Sadducees. 
people who are willing to accept the oppression of others because they are personally benefiting. And to the Jewish nationalists who believe in the resurrection, they might be, the, 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 the question that's going to be coming to them is, what good is resurrection? What good is God? What good is the reestablishing of the nation if we're simply going to keep repeating the same cycle? The Hebrew Scriptures are full of the same cycle of the restoration of Israel and then the fall of Israel, the repentance of Israel, the restoration of Israel. How can, how can a kingdom this time be eternal when history shows it's not et eternal? Something needs to change. But again, they couldn't accept the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason they couldn't accept the resurrection of Jesus is because nowhere in the teachings of Jesus do we see that we should overthrow the Romans through military, or overthrow the Romans through politics, or pray that God will overthrow the Romans through some kind of supernatural cataclysm. That's how it had all happened in the past, and they want that to happen again right now. They couldn't deal with that if Jesus was the resurrected Savior, they couldn't deal with the fact that He wasn't coming back to kill and to conquer, but He was coming back to bring peace and love. They couldn't deal with it wasn't the way they were thinking. And I think one of the questions that, that kind of resonates here is, if, if someone here has rejected the resurrection of Christ, have you really thought about what you're rejecting? Have you really thought that even if you can't get past the supernatural, even if you can't get past, you know, the, the, you know, what you think about Scripture, have you really thought that what you're rejecting, the hope that Christ brings, have you really thought about it? Paul knows his audience. And I think one of the action points for us is that we not only need to know what we believe, we need to know why people do not believe. I think the one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism is not a really good thing. We need to understand, why does this person, are, are they in the atheist, are they in the kind of theist, are they more like the Sadducees where they're just like happy with everything that's going on, they really don't want any change? Where are they? Do we know? How do we find out? Well... You actually got to get to know people. You have to do strange things like talk to them, um, spend time with them. The second thing we see here is Jesus, just like he did with Paul, he has to confront us in our sin. And I want us to make sure we understand the whole thing. Confront us in our sin. It's not just confront us. We don't mind Jesus confronting us as long as he doesn't really know what's going on. It's like, Jesus can come to my house, he just can't go in my bedroom where it's all messy. He needs to confront us in our sin. He needs to save us from our sin. 
Even Christians today, they want hope without transformation. There is no hope in Jesus Christ if it doesn't result in the transformed life. We want hope without transformation. We want this weird thing that I think, I'm pretty sure maybe only Baptists want. We want change without changing. I don't know how that's possible. I actually preached a sermon on that once. Jesus' confrontation of us in our sins is to make this clear. We are the problem. There is only hope if we are transformed. And we cannot do it ourselves. We cannot love as only God can love. We cannot cure the sin problem in our lives. And I'm going to tell you whether people consider themselves Christians or not, they often will reject the hope of Christ because they do not want to change. And, you know, the action point is kind of simple here. Ask Jesus to reveal your sin to you, to confront you in whatever that sin is, whether you're a believer or not, and to help you overcome it. And the last point is this. True faith results in a transformed life. Paul's life is the example here. Paul could not fully accept what he already knew until he was confronted by Jesus. And then everything changed. He went from hater to lover. He went from under the power of Satan to following the will of God. He went from guilt to forgiveness. And just to kind of summarize here, if we're going to accept the hope of the resurrected Lord, we must also accept that we are the problems. We're the reason we need hope. That we must be freed from sin to overcome the problems. We need to be transformed by Jesus Christ. We cannot free or transform ourselves. Transformation begins with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And the transformation will result in righteousness and love. I'm not going to unpack this statement. I just want you to take it and think about it and kind of, you know, dwell in it for, for a while. If I were to summarize Christianity and to talk about what is essential to Christianity, we must have truth immersed in love. Truth immersed in love. We cannot leave truth behind. So much of the world today just wants to talk about love, love, love. Let's just love. Love is. Love does. Love, love, blah, 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 whatever. We cannot leave truth behind. Truth immersed in love, but also get this. This is the second half. Love sourced in truth and grounded in truth. It's not like these are two separate things in the Bible. These things are together, love and truth. You cannot stand for truth and do so without it being immersed in love and to say that it is of God. And you cannot simply love and abandon truth or compromise truth and say it is of God. Truth is immersed in love 
love comes from truth. Founded upon truth. And as we know, as our scripture says, truth is not simply ideas. Jesus Christ himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 